Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And man, am I pumped about today's topic and today's guest. You're in for a treat. This is going to be, uh, I think, eye-opening. Potentially, we'll, we'll shift your thinking on some key topics. This episode of the e-commerce evolution podcast is brought to you by OMG Commerce. And we are thrilled to underwrite this program and bring some amazing guests to you. I have a question for you. How is your YouTube game? Are you using YouTube to help scale your e-commerce business? Hopefully, you're using YouTube both as a remarketing vehicle and also for top of funnel growth. However, if you're like most e-commerce companies, then you're probably not fully leveraging YouTube. So I have two free resources for you. The first is a two-minute crash course on YouTube ads. I recorded this with the famous Ezra Firestone. So you can check that out by looking at the links in the show notes to this show. You can also Google Smart Marketer and two-minute crash course, and you'll find the resource there. Also, we recorded a 90-minute webinar outlining exactly how we scale with YouTube. We talk about keys to a great YouTube ad. We talk about audience targeting. We talk about bidding, optimization, and much, much more. So I highly, highly recommend you check it out. You can also find that linked here in the show notes. It's also at the bottom of the two-minute crash course page. So check them out and start scaling with YouTube. And now, back to the show. My guest today is Rachel Tipograph. And Rachel is the CEO of Micmac. And I was recently at the Digital Agency Summit in New York, and I heard Rachel speak there. And I got to say, uh, it was the best presentation of the whole show. And and uh, Gary V even spoke at this show. So uh, which I love Gary V. Gary V is an investor in Micmac, so that uh, speaks to uh, the credibility, the quality of the work being done at Micmac. And so I'm going to shorten this for the sake of time, but Basically, if there's any award that's like for 30 under 30, most creative people in business, most creative people in advertising, Rachel's on that list, right? So just just a few, uh, Forbes, 30 under 30, who are changing the world. Marie Claire is one of the 50 most influential women in America. Ad Age named her the most one of the most creative people of the year. The list goes on and on. So with that, uh, welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, really excited about this. So, uh, if you would talk a little bit about your your background, because your start in e-commerce is is unique. You, if I'm not mistaken, you got started in e-commerce with a huge, huge brand. So, can you tell a little bit about that that story? Yeah. Um, so, before Micmac, I ran Global Digital at Gap, but my e-com history goes even further back than that. Uh, I was an eBay power user when I was 13 years old. So content and commerce is all that I know. How does that happen? How do you become a power user at 13? That's amazing. Um, Well, I guess the brief story is if you live in the New York area and you're Jewish, you have a bat mitzvah when you're 13 and people give you presents. And I'm the type of person that actually doesn't like things, which is funny because my career is in (laughs) e-com. And I sold all of these presents on a website called eBay. This is the year 2000. That is hilarious. That's when my parents felt like I was onto something and we all bought stock in eBay and the rest is history. 
That is awesome. It almost makes you want to like have round two of of uh, the bat mitzvah so you can get more stuff to sell. I, I think uh, people call it a wedding. A wedding. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Got it. That's that's awesome. Uh, cool. And so so then you were the youngest global director at Gap. Am I right? Yeah, Gap took a real chance on me. Um, essentially, the business had ten years of declining sales, an aging customer base. Their leadership team looked around the room. Their target customer wasn't at the table, which was a 20-something woman. So they decided to hire me. And I reported into the global CMO, who at the time was this man named Seth Farbman. And Seth just honestly really has a knack for spotting up-and-coming talent. And they hired me to lower the average age of the customer. So I was there 2011, 2014. We knocked a decade off the average age of the customer. Amazing. It's amazing. It's pretty awesome time to be there. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, any any big takeaways or or lessons from your time at Gap, and and how did that shape your your thoughts about e commerce in general? Yeah, I mean, I always explain to people that I got my MBA in retail while working at Gap. Um, so from just like a P and L standpoint, the ins and outs of supply chain, everything that it takes to go to market in an omni-channel environment, I owe so much to Gap. But there were three huge trends that were happening between 2011 and 2014 that essentially caused me to quit Gap and start Micmac. Uh, the first was the rise of video. I'll never forget, eMarketer came out with a report at the end of 2013 that in the year 2019, 85% of internet traffic will come from video viewing. So I said to myself, well, if the internet's going to be one big video, e-commerce is going to have to be a part of it. Trend number two. And how close do you think that is? So that, that was predicting, you know, what's going to happen today. Pretty pretty close to those stats. Is that held true for the most part? Yeah, I believe it's held true. Consumption continues to go up and up. For sure. Um, and it all points towards video. You look at emerging platforms like TikTok, Twitch. I mean, everything is rooted in video. Yep. Major trend number two was when I started at Gap 2011. Gap.com, the homepage was the most traffic webpage. When I left at the end of 2014, our product detail pages, meaning gap.com forward slash jeans, forward slash skinny, forward slash blue, right, right. seeing 5x the amount of traffic than our homepage. So no one was entering the store anymore through the front door. Everyone was using these side doors that no one was paying attention to. So the customer journey had changed. And then pain point number three, and this one is wild for people to be like, holy crap, that was happening. When I started at Gap, 10% of our overall U.S. search results occurred within Amazon. When I left three years later, it was close to 50%. Gap is still not available for sale as an authorized seller on Amazon. So it was, yeah, early signs to me that the major e-retailers like Amazon Target Walmart were about to become the biggest players in product search and that brands were going to have to figure out a way to get closer to the customer in these marketplace and wholesaler environments. And that was what caused me to quit my job and essentially build Micmac. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so interesting. I was, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts uh, today, actually, the, the Jason and Scott show, and they were talking about marketplaces and comparing and contrasting the U.S. market to the, the China market. And in China... 90% of e-commerce is done on marketplaces. 
in, in the U.S., it's like 50, 55, mm-hmm. but, but growing. And, you know, as you look at, as I look at people like my, my in-laws or my parents, like they're all, as they're moving more of their commerce online, it's definitely with marketplaces, uh, which, is, which is super interesting. Okay, so you got, you got the trend in video. You got the trend to, you know, nobody's going to a brand's homepage anymore. They're whatever, however they're getting there, whether it's Google Shopping or something else, they're landing on those PDPs. And then you've got the you know marketplaces that are just dominating. So uh, uh, quickly, what does what does Micmac do? And we'll, we'll dig into this more a little bit later, and maybe give some use cases and and uh, and whatnot. But what's what's the quick story of what Micmac is? Yeah. Um, so Micmac, we're the e-commerce platform for highly distributed brands. So if you're a brand where the majority of your e-commerce sales come from places like Amazon, Target, Walmart, Ulta, Sephora you will eventually become my client because today, without us, you live in darkness with that e-retail data. So we built software that allows brands to capture more of that customer data and that customer journey while still driving sales at their biggest marketplaces and wholesale environments. Hmm. So it's ultimately about the data, but then there's also a video component to what you guys do as well? Yeah, so the DNA of the company is deeply rooted in creative because that is my background, is the content piece in e-com. But as the market evolves, I have to say that marketers are becoming way more skilled in DR e-com focused creative, that it's really about just ensuring our clients follow best practices so the content can perform well in our software. Interesting. So let, let's dig into data a little bit. So I heard you speak in New York City at the Digital Agencies Summit, like I mentioned, but you talked about there being a war for first-party data and that if you give up your first-party data, you give up your brand. So, so talk about that a little bit. What, what is this war taking place? And why is it that if we give up our first-party data, we're, we're giving up our brand, essentially? Yeah. So um, if you look at the most valuable companies today by market cap, You'll see names that span so many different industries, whether it's telecom, hardware, oil and gas, content. But what all of these companies have is ownership over first-party data. So that means name, email address, household income, birth date, anything that can allow you to tie a user interaction to an actual person. So my thesis continues to be, if you don't own first-party data, you don't own your brand. You're essentially renting your brand in all these other environments. And the easiest way to conceptualize this is just to think about Toys R Us. I don't know where your listenership exists, but I actually grew up in New Jersey, right by Toys R Us's corporate headquarters. And so Toys R Us is near and dear to my heart. And when Toys R Us went bankrupt, almost a year and a half ago at this point, it was devastating to me. But there was a moment in time where we could pinpoint the demise of Toys R Us. And it was the year 2000. There was a great Wired article where Toys R Us said, Amazon, you can be our e-com backend. And so Amazon said, cool, we're going to learn everything about your business and destroy it over the next 18 years. That's that's, exactly what happened. Yeah, and that's what happened. And so... um, it's a really, really challenging time for brands today because it's cheaper than ever before to bring a product to market, right? We could all go on Alibaba, like pick a product out, get a graphic designer, 
put a brand on it, start buying Facebook ads, launch a Shopify, and now you're a direct-to-consumer brand. But the moment you hit somewhere between 50 and $150 million in revenue, you begin to plateau. And then you end up on the shelves of Amazon, Target, and Walmart. And that's when you begin to yeah, give up your, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's when you begin to give up your first party data. So it's in a brand's best interest to constantly ask themselves, what value proposition can I have out in the world that will allow me to constantly collect first party data? So at Micmac, you know, I work with these huge companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, and they're available everywhere. Some of their brands have a D2C business. The D2C business has to be a different value proposition than what you find at Amazon, Target, Walmart. Whether it's high-end products that you can't buy anywhere else or high-end customer service that you can't find anywhere else. Like that's the question that you as a brand have to ask yourself is what's that value proposition that will constantly bring first-party data into the fold so you don't completely lose the customer relationship. Got it. So so we're kind of at this point where, you know, you, you got this direct-to-consumer brand, it's growing, it's hot, you got a, a real following, you hit that 50, and maybe you're doing it all on Shopify or another platform, you hit that 50 to 100 million. Now, really to grow, you have to hit some of these marketplaces, right? That That's just where the rest of the growth is going to be. But then to your point, then you, you have to still not get lost in those marketplaces, but have a reason for people to still engage with you on your own.com and things like that. And so some of the suggestions you have then are exclusive products, uh, a good customer experience, and any other tips or specific suggestions? And then who do you think does that well? So who, who exists both in their own.com and on marketplaces, but still keeps their personality and has this good value prop off of the marketplaces? Who, who would you emulate here? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first, the first part of your question, like other suggestions, I mean, personalization, gifting, right? Like uh, any type, depending on your product category, like any type of professional or medical service, like anything that's like a high value customer value proposition is the opportunity for D2C because in marketplace and wholesaler, it's the mass product play. Mm-hmm. And I think people who do it well that are big names, um, take my client at Colgate. They have a teeth whitening product that's only available D2C, $150 value. You can buy a whole slew of other Colgate products at Amazon, Target, Walmart. And they've had conversations, I'm sure, internally. I'm not privy to them, where they're probably like, Walmart's saying, we got to put this on the shelf. And we say no, because we know we have a high-end customer value proposition that a customer is willing to give their first-party data. So that's like one example. I think another example is you just think about Adidas and Nike. For a long time, you know, Adidas and Nike, it's available at Kohl's, Macy's. But then you have kids on the street, at least in New York City, who will sleep outside overnight to buy Yeezys, right? So you can have that high-end and low-end value proposition. It's all about merchandising and brand segmentation. Yep, makes sense. Yeah, or people that pay 250 bucks to get their their customized Nike or to get the retro Jordans that are just the specific color that you can only get online or whatever. That's a, that's a great example. Love that. Um, Cool. So uh, totally get it. You got to, got to provide a reason and an incentive to keep getting that first party data, because ultimately if you don't have the first party data, you don't own the relationship, right? At that point, then Amazon or Walmart, whoever owns that relationship and not you. 
Um, cool. So one of the things, one of the comments you made at at DAX, which I thought was great, I disagreed with slightly, but I think in certain contexts you're you're right. And so we we talk a lot about like in our agency where we used to use the term full funnel agency. Now we're talking about you know how to influence the different stages of the shopping journey, and we got kind of a process we call AMP to do that. But you made a comment that today's shopping funnel starts at the consideration level first Mm -hmm. and then brand building and loyalty start after the first purchase. Mm -hmm. So so talk about that because I think that's going to be a a new concept for a lot of people listening. Yeah. Um, So I did make that grandiose statement and I do believe that it applies to a lot of the mass consumer product subcategories. There can be nuances where maybe it doesn't apply for like luxury or lifestyle brands. But for the majority of my clients where I'm literally selling crackers and shampoo, it absolutely starts at that product consideration level. And so um, the easiest way to conceptualize this is think about your Instagram or Facebook feed, whether it's stories, in feed, whatever way you like to consume content. And every single time you see a product message, what's the time that you stop? You stop when it's this what I call the what the fuck moment where you see a product and you're like, huh, it works like that. Like, Oh my God, it clears your skin from acne or a belt that expands with your waistline. Like it's all about key product benefit messaging. It's what causes people to click or hit add to cart. It's not a Super Bowl ad. Yeah. And so that's like one way that I get people to understand this is that the funnel really starts with product consideration first just think about all of the random products that you bought off of Facebook and Instagram where you have no idea what the brand is. You don't know the founder's story, where the product's merchandise, like none of that matters. You're buying this product because of this key product benefit that was communicated to you. Or think about your behavior on Amazon. You Maybe you're a triathlete and you want to find a, a drink that doesn't have too much sugar that can keep you going through your race. So you're going to literally type in like triathlete drink It's all about product consideration. You're not writing a brand like Soylent. That happens after the initial purchase. So this is hard for a lot of uh, traditional brand marketers to think about because it kind of challenges their existence. It does. Their existence has always been about building the brand, protecting the brand. And key product benefits is just something that you would send to legal for legal to tell you, like, what's the improved copy that we should put in the smallest fine print? And that's just not the way that the internet works anymore when it comes to driving e-com. So uh, that's like the first thing. And then the second thing is, okay, now you've got someone to buy your product. And that took a whole lot of work. It took work to get someone to consider you and to then go through that checkout flow. Now they made the purchase. The next challenge that brands have is getting someone to come back, right? Whether it's to replenish or buy another item that's in their merchandising portfolio. And that's when brand building comes in. And I think someone who, you know, had done this incredibly well, and it gets referenced all the time, is away suitcases, right? And you really then get bought into that brand story after you buy that rolly bag that can charge your phone. Um, and that's how you begin to upsell new colorways, other additions, collaborations. And that's where the energy of the brand will come from. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, and I think I think you're right. It does challenge, like, especially brand building agencies, kind of challenges their core and what they've always done. And and we, we want to create these videos that, that tell a story and their lifestyle. It's got this you know, slice of life or this vignette that it, that it tells, you know, to, to paint the picture of, of where someone is in their life that would make them a good fit for this product. But, uh, you know, there's been a number of products that I've purchased on, on Instagram or off, off of social media in general. And it usually is some kind of benefit that, that hooks you. I mean, even think about something like purple mattress, as an example, we do a lot with YouTube with, with my agency and, um, you know, the, the raw egg test, you know, of, of showing this, this dramatization of mm-hmm. how the purple mattress cradles your pressure points. Like that's maybe what triggers someone to stop and say, huh, what, what's like, what's up with, what's up with this? Or, or MeUndies has done a great job with like this, these are, it's, it's this micro modal, but it's like this underwear that's amazing, whatever. Um, it's that stuff that, that kind of hooks you and stops you and, and makes you think. I was actually, I was at a, a YouTube summit in New York City last week and they were, they had a bunch of data just on what videos are not skipped. And then what videos are recalled most by viewers based on where they were in the shopping journey. And it was interesting. A lot of what they shared actually ties back to what you were talking about. It's a lot of yeah, product I'm demonstration. What's that? I'm not full of crap. <laughs> I, know. I know you're not. That's why, that's why I invited you on. Uh, but it is interesting. It's like some of the stuff that was recalled the most, some of the, some of the videos that had the highest favorability, and these were all done with, with YouTube surveys, were videos that had product demonstration or person on camera talking directly to someone about product, right? 100%. Super, super interesting. So, yep. um, cool. You you gave an example uh, lessons from Kylie Jenner on you know how how that brand has exploded on social, and I think it's a good example uh, for a lot of reasons. One, a lot of people know kind of what it is, but but what did they do? What did that brand do that was unique? In, in really going from obscurity, although Kylie Jenner wasn't obscure, but the brand from obscurity to, you know, what is it like a $900 million company or something crazy like that? So, um, you know, I work with a ton of traditional CPG brands and sometimes I have to dispel the myth of social commerce for them. They're like, eh, social commerce doesn't work for us. And I go, really? Like you have a marketing department of, 5,000 people globally. How come Kylie Jenner with seven people and a Shopify site and Instagram can build nearly a billion dollar business? And then they just kind of pause. What does Kylie Jenner seem to understand that you don't? And there's a few things at play here. And one, we obviously cannot ignore the celebrity factor. So that's inherent, right? Like but arguably, there. I mean, she's not the most famous person in her family, right? So, I mean, she still has an edge, but it's like a lot of people just want to discount that her business is great because of her family, but that that's really missing the point. 100%. So, uh, so there was a built-in following to jumpstart, right? Selling a few products. But if you file, file um, her beauty line, what you'll see is every single piece of creative is a how-to tutorial. It's exactly what you were talking about. Like it's key product benefit messaging. It's before and after transformations. It's how to's. It's not a girl's hair blowing in the wind in a Corvette where she's trying to communicate the ethos of her brand. Right. And so that's like number one. And number two is the growth ecosystem that she's put in place around her marketing. 
So what I explain to people is that growth in e-com comes from two ways today, and it's paid acquisition and niche influencer seeding, all going after very, very clear audience segments. So in beauty, it could people people who indicate that they have rosacea or acne or people who have a certain skin color tone. When you're going to market and you want to sell a product, you want to make sure that you're going after these super niche audiences. In food, it could be someone who indicates a dietary or allergy. So like gluten, for example, versus all moms, 18 to 34 in the Midwest area. Like you're not going to move product that way. And so it's understanding that in order to win an e-com, you actually have to go small to win big. And Kylie Jenner understands this and traditional brand marketers seem to not. Mm. What were some of the ways she went small? Do you know? Do you know some of the audience targeting and stuff that she, that she used? Yeah. So she, she does a ton around shade. So does Rihanna, right? Like understanding people's skin tones and mm. then capturing that intent and then literally featuring photography that meet, matches that skin tone or a product that is for that skin tone. Very interesting. You also mentioned uh, Native Deodor, which is a brand we we both know really well. But they, I didn't know, know this, and I know I know the founder really well. But uh, they, when they started, they uh, focused on prenatal women and people impacted by disease or something like that. Like those, those were their first audiences they started with. Yeah. So it's aluminum free deodorant, and when they first came to market, they understood we can't just spray and pray with yeah. impressions going after eighteen to forty nine. That's our demo. Okay. Yeah. Good luck. Like Old Spice is going after the same thing. Right. And so they said, all right, well, who are people that are searching on the internet for aluminum-free deodorant? And what they learned was that there was a high propensity with prenatal mothers, because if you are pregnant, one of the first things the doctor tells you is to stop using deodorant that has aluminum in it. And then if you're diagnosed with cancer, the doctor also says the same thing. So people who were recently impacted by cancer. And that informed their growth strategy because they saw the demand in these niche pockets. And that mindset, again, for a traditional brand marketer, they haven't thought that way. Yep. I love it. I love it. It's so smart. It's it's kind of combining that, okay, what are, what are the, the key benefits of this product, making that super clear, dramatizing that a little bit, but what are the, the key benefits? And then starting with this, this super niche market or very focused market, uh, super, super smart. So another thing you talked about is that social is the world's largest mall and the world's largest end checkout. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So when... I brought my company to market in the beginning of 2017. Uh, We pretty much created social commerce. We were Instagram shopping before Instagram shopping. And I had to go into these offices and explain to people that social commerce is real. And the way that I got them to understand... Because for a long time, people did not believe that. People people believed you could discover products on social, but not that like social commerce wasn't going to work. I heard a lot of people talking about that. Yes. So 2017, it was still convincing people that product discovery is happening on Instagram. And when I talk with traditional brand marketers, I just try to make analogies. So mall traffic is declining. Doesn't mean that people are not looking to discover products. They're just now, the store window is Instagram. And they're like, oh, I got it. So, and then you started to see all of these challenger direct-to-consumer brands go to market via Instagram first. 
So it validated that. So I always open up and I'm like, Instagram is the world's largest mall. The physical mall is now a town center, right? What's moving into malls? Churches and fitness centers. So the world has changed. Yep, yep. So that's number one. And then number two, transactions are happening. The first way to validate this is what I experienced at Gap. Social referral traffic is either within the number one or the number three top sources to someone's e-commerce environment. So it is a key, key driver in terms of product consideration. So that would be like the story going into 2018. And then in 2019, what you've seen is that the social platforms are trying to build a behavior to own checkout. But none of this has ever really been about shopping. It has always been about collecting first-party data. Mm. Why? Because Facebook and Amazon are actually the biggest competitors on the internet. They're competing for the same DR ad dollars. And it is a war to own checkout. Mm. Interesting. So so how do you see this playing out? Uh, I mean, because Amazon continues to, to grow at a, at a crazy pace, but... I know, and this is just anecdotal. Uh, you know, I, I mainly focus on the the Google Ads ecosystem and the Amazon Ads ecosystem. I don't do a lot with Instagram, or my agency doesn't. Although I do buy things directly from uh, Instagram. Um, how do you see this playing out? Do you do you see those kind of being the two the two big places for online shopping, Instagram and, and Amazon? What what are your predictions or thoughts? Yeah, Facebook, Amazon, Google. Like mm-hmm. in terms of performance marketing, that's the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think that there's open pockets of attention on the internet that you can be capturing depending on your product category. And and it depends what lens you want to look at success through. You know, I'm a partner to all the social platforms and there's a lot of intent that is harnessed within Pinterest. They just haven't gotten their ad products to a place yet to actually prove that conversion. Um, I do believe that day will come, but they're, you know, a little bit behind. With Snap, you know, they've made their media very cost-effective that through a CPM lens, it's actually a good place to drive conversion, but it's it tells a different funnel story. You have to buy a lot more impressions to get the same amount of sales that you would get through Facebook, but it depends what you want your media model to tell you. Um, I think that Twitch can be an awesome environment for folks depending on their product subcategory. So there are other pockets to capture, but by and large, if you had $1, I would say you give 33 cents to Facebook, 33 cents to Amazon, 33 cents to Google. Totally makes sense. Love it. So we just have a few minutes left. I, I want to dig in more to Micmac in just a second and how you guys help brands get more of that first-party data because that, that's super, super important. Um, what about some of the, the shifts in the landscape, uh, you know, with, with GDPR, the California Privacy Act? How do you see things getting harder, customer acquisition getting harder in, in 2020? What recommendations do you have for merchants? Yeah. Um, so if you work at a big company, uh, by and large, your legal team is going to be conservative. And have you be overly cautious around GDPR? and probably have you stop doing a lot of things that you're currently doing in your ad targeting strategies, which means your media is probably going to become less efficient because they're going to tell you, no, you can't use data in this way. You can't build these types of lookalike audiences, et cetera. So that's why my thesis is cost per customer acquisition is about to go up because 
targeting is going to go broad. And then the second is playing into the scare tactics. The platforms are going to make you pay a premium to do things that your legal team deem as kosher because the platforms have now brought a product to market that's GDPR compliant when it's literally the same things that you do today. So legal lawyers are making money and the platforms are about to make money around all of this GDPR chaos. Yeah, brand, brands are going to be the ones that, that suffer a bit. So, yep. yep, yep, got it, got it. Let's dig into Micmac a little bit. Uh, I'm really excited about what you're doing. So so how does Micmac allow the merchant, the, the native deodorants of the world, the Kylie Jenners of the world, how does Micmac help capture and keep more of that first-party data? And then how is the tool used? Yeah, so um, our clients are actually less like the Kylie Jenners. One day when Kylie Jenner wants to sell at Sephora, she'll become my client. But we focus on brands that care about marketplace and wholesalers. That's where the biggest pain is in terms of owning that data, owning that customer relationship. Um, So we built software that replaces product detail pages. So instead of sending traffic to amazon.com forward slash L'Oreal, you're actually going to send traffic to me that's connected to Amazon's cart. You, the customer, have no idea. That's what we're doing here. We so, the, so the page looks like the Amazon page, but it's actually not? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it feels completely native to whatever environment you're in. So if you're on Instagram, it feels like Instagram. If you're on the open web, it'll feel like Amazon, et cetera. Um, and so the customer doesn't know this. And our most popular use case is that we actually can serve the user multiple carts. So today, brands are often making arbitrary decisions around where to direct traffic. Um, they're often obligated to try to give equal love to their biggest retailers. So they'll just say 33% of our media is going to go to Amazon, 33% Target, 33% Walmart, not knowing if the person who's seeing your ad actually is a Walmart shopper. And if they're not, then that's a wasted impression. And there's no way for them to connect that attribution. So we serve multiple retailers to the user. The user gets to decide, oh yeah, I'm an Amazon girl. I'm going to check out an Amazon and boom, that item goes into the Amazon cart. It allows the brand to completely control their product detail page. No competitors appear there. They can optimize their media and creative in real time because there's no middleman. And they can start to do, you know, close to full funnel attribution in a way that they've never been able to do before. That's amazing. Are you getting pushback or I'm sure there are hoops and hurdles you're having to overcome with the platforms like like uh, Amazon and stuff, or so, is all I mean, we're a developer partner. That's how I built everything nice. off of their systems. Um, and the premise is really simple: because brands were arbitrarily making decisions on where to direct media, more often than not, they were missing out on sixty six percent of the opportunity. So our user experience allows legal teams to be like, "Yes, this is kosher. This is fair and equitable distribution." And all of a sudden, the retailers have more of an opportunity now to collect that checkout that they wouldn't have before. Got it. So, so the, the the brands, the marketplaces, they they like your product as well. Yeah, like. I'm the retailer still gets the end customer. I'm not taking their customer away, and then the brand gets to own more of that customer data and customer journey. So we're kind of Switzerland. Awesome. Love it. So if someone listening to this says, man, I, first of all, want to know more about Rachel. She's brilliant. I want to hear more talks or consume more of her content. Where can people find you? And then what if they want to learn more about Micmac because they're selling on marketplaces, they want to own their first party data. 
How can they do that as well? Yeah, so um, it's my name across every social channel, Rachel Tipograph. Uh, so you can find me there, and I'm often sharing what I'm up to. Uh, and then uh, to learn more about Micmac or request a demo, just go to our website, micmac, M-I-K-M-A-K dot TV, micmac.tv. Awesome. And I will link to everything in the show notes as well. So check it out at ecommerceevolution.com. Rachel, tipograph, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that was fantastic, Rachel. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you. Have a great day. Awesome. Thanks. You as well. Uh, with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. I would love to hear more from you. What are the topics would you like us to dive into? And with that, until next time, thank you for listening. At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.